You are listening to a sample of the song Ride to War by eclectic neo-folk band Draugablik from Sweden. This song is an authentic war song from the great Eurasian steppe, sung around the campfires of the Huns and the Goths as they warred against the Romans more than 1,500 years ago. Draugablik sings not only about Norse mythology and the Viking Age, but more intriguingly about the Dark Ages, also known as the Migration Era, a dangerous time in Europe that helped seed the Vikings, who would appear some 500 years later. Draugablik is a Huno-Gothic neo-folk band, and that's in reference to the Scythian-like Huns of Western Asia and the Goths of ancient Scandinavia. The full song is included at the end of this show, with an exclusive audio animatic showing the actual band as painted photographs. To hear more of their music, just click the link in the description or go to draugablick.com slash warspirit. That's D-R-A-U-G-A-B-L-I-K-K dot com slash warspirit. Stay tuned until the end of this episode to hear the entire song. to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Today, my guest is Corey Hughes. First, a couple of announcements. If you guys would like to help in any way with the Forbidden Documentary or the publishing of Corey's book, you can go to supportfkn.com. Anything is greatly appreciated. And any donation of $5 or more, and you're going to get access to tons of never-before-seen secrets about the JFK assassination. That will be going into Corey's upcoming book. Our website, ForbiddenKnowledge.news, is also the home of the Forbidden Knowledge Network. You're going to find some of your favorite podcasts from our community there. Forbidden Knowledge News is always available on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, and all podcast platforms. But Rockfin is where you get our premium content. That's also where you get all the premium content from every creator on Rockfin for only $10 a month. You can also create a free account and get access to everyone's free content, including all of our regular shows. Just go to rockfin.com slash FKN plus or click the link in the description to sign up. Today, I want to welcome back to the show Corey Hughes. He's a historian, host of Understanding Propaganda and co-host of Day Zero. Corey, welcome back. How you doing? Excellent. Thank you. 
Well, welcome back, man. It's going to be a good one. It's been a little while. We need to once again dive back into your research into the JFK assassination, which will be in your upcoming book. Like I said earlier, today we're going to go, uh, take a look at the assassination of J.D. Tippett and the circumstances surrounding what we've already gone over, which is a never-ending onion of spycraft, black ops, murder, and the catalyst for this globalist control system that we're currently a part of. Uh, so where are we going to start today? Okay, <clears throat> so we're going to start uh, with the assassination of J.D. Tippett. And so everyone uh, thinks that Oswald shot Tippett. Oswald didn't shoot Tippett. Okay, so for people who are not too familiar with the assassination, um, Oswald allegedly flees from the book depository uh, first on a bus. Uh, but the bus is jammed up in traffic, so allegedly he gets off the bus and he gets into a cab driven by a man named William Whaley. Um, now, I just need to preface this by stating, and uh, to date, I am the only person who has really come to figure this out, but Oswald did not work at the book depository. Uh, and if anything, it was more of a uh, place for him to check in with a handler. Uh, at some level, the boss of the book depository, a guy named William Shelley, uh, was in some ways connected to Oswald as a handler, but uh, I have found zero evidence that Oswald worked at the book depository. Uh, now, in order to understand that, you have to understand that the textbook industry in America is controlled by the Central Intelligence Agency. Do you really think that the government and the CIA would allow just any Joe Schmo to write a textbook and get it into schools? No. Uh, that's where the narrative begins with brainwashing our kids in school. And so the government, particularly via the CIA, um, controlled the textbook industry. And back in 1963, uh, that was no different than either. So when you look at the companies that are all in the book depository, you have like the Macmillan Company, Southwest Publishing, Scott Forsman. You got a whole bunch of these publishing companies. When you start to research these publishing companies, you'll find that all of these textbook publishing companies have deep connections to the Central Intelligence Agency. And the Texas School Book Depository was a place where textbooks would be shipped in bulk and then they would send them to individual schools, right? So I tell people, not everybody who works for the CIA is a super spy. Even the CIA needs guys who will mop the floor. And that's where all the guys who work in the book depository come in. They are, you know, they there's a bunch of guys who are definitely in on it, a bunch of guys who are definitely not in on it. And then all the secretaries in the building were not in on it. Their statements are contradictory. And they you can just tell by reading through the statements of all the women in that building, that uh, they were not in on the plot. And so when you start to dig into statements of the people of the book depository, you'll come to realize that half the people who worked in that building had never seen Oswald ever until he showed up on television that night. Um, a lot of the statements you can tell were manipulated by Dallas police or the FBI because they're basically copy paste. Um, they keep saying a lot of the same things like, I did not see any strangers in the building that day. Every statement you'll read from someone at the book depository has that line. I did not see any strangers in the building. Okay. So all the statements from all the people there are tampered with, but you can kind of tell by, you know, the statements of some people, especially even Ovi Campbell. Ovi Campbell was the vice president of the company, Texas School Book Depository. He was the top man in that company, in that building. And he had never seen Oswald ever. And Oswald had allegedly been working there for about five or six weeks at the time of the assassination. Okay. So Oswald was not there. The man who was working in the book depository, at least on November 22nd, um, under the guise of being Oswald was a guy named William Seymour. And uh, we're not going to talk too much about him today, but we're going to talk about another person 
who was impersonating Oswald all over not only just Dallas, but all over Texas, New Orleans, Montreal, a bunch of other places. And the guy, that's a guy named Kerry Thornley. Kerry uh, Thornley was a Marine buddy of Oswald. They were in the Marines together in 1959. And 1959 is when Oswald and Kerry Thornley had to have been recruited by intelligence. Kerry uh, Thornley definitely was working with the CIA, although I have it on uh, good authority that Oswald was not CIA, that he was actually working for naval intelligence. So, uh, but post-1959, uh, when you follow Oswald's like career in the military for the two two years or so that he was there, Kerry uh, Thornley was basically must have been assigned to him because he was shadowing Oswald everywhere. Every place Oswald got moved to, Kerry Thornley got moved to. And I even found Kerry Thornley using an alias while in the Marines, uh, posing as a photographer named Rick Thornley, Richard Thornley. So, yeah, there's definitely some intelligence shenanigans going on with Oswald back to the beginning of his uh his life in the military. Obviously, his defection to the Soviet Union was probably part of a program called AE Balcony, uh, which was a program designed to recruit native, um, naturalized American citizens, meaning people who were not Americans who came to this country who spoke fluent Russian, and they would take these people and then ship them back to Russia to be spies. And it fell under the heading of a, of a program called AE Balcony. Uh, there were a couple other sub-programs under AE Balcony, but Oswald's dates of deployment to the Soviet Union match almost identically with uh, the years that AE Balcony was in operation. So, But Kerry Thornley has been a, a shadow of Oswald everywhere. Um, and so to understand, like, uh, I've covered this, you know, ad nauseum in the past. But we're going to touch on it a little bit today. Oswald was being impersonated all over the place. Uh, the vast majority of incidents that people attribute to Lee Harvey Oswald were never Lee Harvey Oswald. It wasn't Oswald at the book depository. It wasn't Oswald at the shooting range. Uh, none of the things that we attribute to Lee Harvey Oswald, like ordering the rifle and the handgun, none of that stuff was done by Oswald. He didn't go to Mexico City. Basically, Oswald is completely a ghost until he shows up at the Texas theater uh, where he's arrested about, uh, you know, an hour and a half after he gets there, or an hour after he gets there. So, yeah, the story of Oswald that everyone knows is completely false. Uh, and the setup of Oswald was heavily dependent upon two guys, William Seymour and Kerry Thornley, impersonating Oswald all over the place, leaving these this like false trail uh, back to this communist dissident persona, because everywhere these guys went, they talked about guns or communism or things that would be attributed to Oswald. But uh, today, uh, and as far as the assassination of J.D. Tippett, so allegedly Oswald takes a bus and then a cab and he goes to his boarding house. And then from the boarding house, he walks uh, down towards where Tippett shot in the area of 10th and Patton from uh, 1026 North Beckley. And from there, after shooting uh, J.D. Tippett, he then uh, runs to the Texas theater and hides in there sometime about 136. Like that whole story that I just told you is a complete fiction that was made up by uh, the Warren Commission and uh, the Dallas police and the FBI who were all in on this. OK, this was the Truman Show. Everybody in this thing, 500 plus people all involved in the assassination, whether or not they knew Kennedy was going to get killed or Tippett was going to get killed. That's probably most of them probably didn't. But they were all at least on some level working with either the mafia, the Mossad or the CIA doing some sort of covert uh, activities surrounding Oswald. So, man, you mentioned the Truman Show. I don't want to get too far off topic. But speaking of fake reality, I was talking 
to somebody the other day. Do you remember those old uh, kind of show you how um, documentaries that show you how fast food commercials are made? You can still get them on YouTube and stuff where it's just like a fake piece of meat and like cardboard and dry ice and nothing is is fucking edible at all in what they're showing you in the commercial, but it looks beautiful and looks delicious. And when you get it in <laughs> right. reality, it's like a big turd sandwich. Well, apply what you're seeing in this commercial to everything you fucking see in the media, on the news, on TV, everywhere. I mean, it's all, you know, a big turd sandwich in reality, but they just like to to pretty it up. Today, I saw an article that just came out that said diet and exercise are not a cure for obesity. I'm like, (laughs) what? (laughs) What? Next, you're going to tell me the sky isn't blue. It's like when people start telling you the sky's not blue, then you know we're really fine. Hey, man, those crickets are coming, man. Those those, uh, edible cricket Cheetos. I saw some. uh, You can get like eight bags for 26 bucks now, man. The bugs are coming. Um, I will eat straight up dog shit before I eat crickets. I'm sorry. I'm just not going to do it. And then people argue, well, hey, there's like already bugs in our food as it is. Like there's, there's certain chemicals and stuff they extract from bugs that they put in. I'm like, that's a different nah, story. This is straight up ground like crickets and bugs and shit, man. You, can't, you could never force me to eat that shit either. Yeah, ne- never. Uh, see, that stuff stems from living in poverty, and we're not quite there yet. Even in America, our poor people. Well, no, that's what they want. Like the World Economic Forum, that's where they're headed. To, you haven't heard how they're trying to uh, get you to uh, stop eating meat and start eating bugs and shit. Now, this is a new agenda. Yeah, um, the, the the hammer is gonna, the pendulum is gonna swing back so far the other direction that all these people are gonna end up in a fucking. I think camp it's starting to, man. We're starting to see Q shit again, so <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> so. In regards to the assassination J.D. Tippett, people wonder why was J.D. Tippett killed. Um, and some people say that it's because they thought he looked like Kennedy and they needed a body double to do Kennedy body double stuff after he was killed. Uh, while that did, in fact, happen, there was a definitely some photographs using a cadaver that wasn't Kennedy. It was probably not J.D. Tippett. The timeline doesn't add up or none of that stuff. So that's honestly, that's conspiracy theory. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm a historian. So. Uh, But basically, let's uh, address what happened at 1026 North Beckley. So 1026 North Beckley is allegedly where Oswald was living. Let me give you a a hint. Oswald didn't live there. Okay. Carrie Thornley was living there. We have, I have a a ton of evidence that uh, basically just proves the idea that Oswald ever lived there. Um, So let's start at the cab. So William Whaley drops, allegedly drops Oswald off a couple blocks away from his boarding house. Uh, but we have a couple problems with the timeline of when the person who's dropped off uh, actually arrives at the boarding house. So William Whaley uh, picks up his subject sometime around 1238, 1239. He drops them off uh, in Oak Cliff in the area of the 500 b- block of North Beckley. And this is probably around 1247, uh, because in his logbook, he rounded to the nearest, uh, the nearest like five minutes. And he had the call cleared by 1245, which means it was probably within a minute or two at 1245. So uh, uh, the person who uh, allegedly shows up at the, at the boarding house, who's said to have been Oswald at one o'clock. So Erlene Roberts, the manager of the boarding house, says that he shows up at one o'clock. He goes in his room. Uh, he was there just long enough to grab the, the, the tan jacket that was found uh, at the Texaco later on uh, and walk out the door. OK, so but it was not Oswald. It was Carrie Thornley. So as uh, Oswald, let me back up a little. So the one of the biggest problems is the time frame. If he's dropped off at 1237, the, the, house, the boarding house was only a block or two away. What did he do for 10 to 13 minutes? I don't know. There's no, there's a huge gap here. That's a lot of time, 10 to 13 minutes. Um, and so my conclusion was that there was a second safe house in the area uh, 
that the person who was dropped off from the cab, who was not Oswald, ended up going to. Um, the person who William Whaley drops off, who I believe was actually Alvin Boboof, but I'm not going to go into that today. I believe that he walks to this other safe house where Carrie Thornley is already waiting. Just remember, this whole entire thing from the assassination to the shooting of J.D. Tippett to the uh, police arriving at the Texas theater over this 90 minute time period, every single thing that happened was timed and staged. And I'll get to the details on that momentarily, but they had to have things happen at exact times in order for the story to play out like the official story says. So we have this huge gap, can't explain it. The only thing that explains it is that there was a second safe house and then Carrie Thornley was at this second safe house. And then at exactly one o'clock, he walks into the boarding house. He grabs allegedly a gun and he grabs the jacket and then he leaves while he's there in his room. And he's only there for maybe a minute. Early and Roberts told investigators that Dallas police car number two, 207 pulled up in front of the boarding house, honked the horn twice and then drove off uh, towards Zang Boulevard, which was the next street over. Almost immediately after the horn is honked, within about 30 seconds, Carrie Thornley walks out the front door of the 1026 North Beckley boarding house, and he ends up getting into that cop car, and he is driven to the site of the Tippett shooting. So the official story says that Tippett got shot at 1.16 p.m. They had to go out of their way to manufacture records to support the, the 1.16 p.m. timeline, uh, because that's the only way that <clears throat> allegedly Oswald could have made the walk, which was 0.8 miles. It's the only way he could have made that walk in time to shoot J.D. Tippett at 116. But it's completely false. When you start to look into the radio transcripts and you get witness statements and all this stuff, it turns out that J.D. Tippett was shot at 106. OK, so you have Kerry Thornley leaving the boarding house, getting into a cop car at about 102. And then he is driven to the Tippett shooting by two cops. One of them is Captain uh, William Westbrook, who was the captain of uh, personnel. He handled like recruitment and like internal affairs and stuff like that. And the other cop with him was a, a, a sergeant named uh, Kenneth Croy. So uh, I'm not going to get into the backstory on these guys. They're obviously in on this because they lied about where they were and how they got around. And I completely deciphered where they were, what cars they were driving, all that stuff, which contradicts the official story. So these two guys go and they pick Kerry Thornley up at the boarding house at about 1.02 p.m. They drive him to the alley between 404 and 407 East 10th Street, where J.D. Tippett is already waiting. Now, J.D. Tippett was most certainly in on the assassination at some level. He was definitely associated with David Ferry, and he is photographed in Dealey Plaza uh, at exactly 12.30 on Houston Street as Kennedy's making the turn onto Elm Street. So all the speculation on what J.D. Tippett did that morning, like people have written whole books about what J.D. Tippett did that morning and they still didn't get the fucking thing right, okay? One thing about uh, J.D. Tippett's activities in the morning I will comment on <clears throat> is that he allegedly went for coffee at Austin's Barbecue at about 10.30 that morning, okay? So J.D. Tippett was a regular at Austin's but not necessarily because he ate the food there. Um, the guy who had owned Austin's barbecue was a guy named um, Ralph Paul. Okay. They call this guy Ralph Paul, but his real name was Ralph Paul John. I figured out his last name. The official story never mentions this guy's last name. Okay. So Ralph Paul John owned the Austin's barbecue. He was a close associate of uh, Jack Ruby. And he actually is the guy who funded Jack Ruby, Jack Ruby's endeavors in Dallas. Okay. So, uh, we have J.D. Tippett, who is definitely connected to David Ferry, uh, and he's also connected to Jack Ruby, at least through Ralph Paul John. So um, 
the Austin's barbecue, I'll have to dig into a little more. Um, and it won't be in my, in this book coming up, but it'll be in a, in a future book. Uh, but all that stuff for today's conversation is pretty irrelevant. Um, so the, the key thing about Tippett is after he leaves Dealey Plaza, he heads to uh, the area of uh, North Oak Cliff at a gas station called the Good Luck Oil Company. It's a Gloco, the Gloco station. And the Gloco station was right off of the Houston Street viaduct on the Oak Cliff side. So you have like this little bridge that connects the downtown area to Oak Cliff. And J.D. Tippett was sitting at this gas station from 1245 till just before one o'clock. And the thing that's important about this area that he's sitting is the bus that Oswald allegedly got on. But remember, Oswald wasn't in Dealey Plaza. Oswald's chilling in Fort Worth this whole time. Okay, so the bus that he was allegedly got on, which was the wrong bus to take Oswald to the boarding house. If Oswald was going to the boarding house, he needed to wait five minutes for a different bus. But he gets on this bus. Allegedly, that is the bus that would have connected to the Gloco station. It was a bus stop at the Gloco station, and it was on that bus line. So J.D. Tippett was told to be at the Gloco station either to arrest or shoot or give a ride to or something involving a person who should have gotten off the bus at the Gloco station. But at one o'clock, he's sitting there for 15 minutes. The bus comes and goes. Nobody gets off the bus. So J.D. Tippett at this time, he gets in his car and he, and he goes to the top 10 record store. The top 10 record store, which is still there today uh, in Dallas. I didn't know this. If I, I would have gone there, if I'd have known it was still there. Um, they actually, um, J.D. Tippett goes there and he makes a phone call at one o'clock and he seems panicked. He's like, oh my God, you know, the people in the store are like, he's definitely antsy. He's pushing people out of the way to get to the phone. Uh, and he calls and like, nobody knows who he calls. I suspect he was calling Captain Westbrook for further instruction, but he, there's no answer. And then he, he rushes out of there and that place actually still has that phone connected to their phone line. They act that phone. You can actually go into the top 10 record store and you can actually see the phone that JD Tippett actually used. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, but so JD Tippett, it's about one o'clock JD Tippett rushes out of there and he, there must've been a prearranged meeting spot right where he was killed at 10th and Patton. But on the way to 10th and Patton, he's still in a panic at about 101 or 102 PM. He's driving West on 10th street towards where he will be killed. But what he does is he cuts off a car and a guy named uh, Andrews, Stephen Andrews, I believe his name was, he cuts this car off, he gets out of the vehicle and he runs back to this car, signaling to the guy to st stay there. He never says a word to this guy. He looks in the back seat. And when he sees that there's nobody in the back seat, he gets back in his car and continues to drive uh, west on 10th Street to the location where he'll ultimately be killed. So uh, if you look at a map of 10th Street, you have... 10th street and then you have 404 and 407 east 10th but there's like a dirt alleyway between the two houses when Tippett pulls up there about a minute later the cop car driven by captain westbrook uh, with sergeant croy in the passenger seat and carrie thornley in the back seat they pull into the alley between the houses so they're kind of perpendicular right Tippett's car is facing one way and the other car is like coming at him but Tippett's blocking the alley at this moment, um, David Ferry is on scene as well. And we know David Ferry is on scene because we have a witness behind the book depository who sees a guy with a dark felt hat, blue suit, real heavy eyebrows. And uh, the real heavy eyebrows are what gave him away. It's what gives him away everywhere because he had to paint his eyebrows on. We've talked about it a whole bunch of times. So he ends up 
over at the area of the tippet shooting at 10th and Patton, and he's driving a light blue, kind of grayish, that weird light blue gray color, right? It's an old 1950s Plymouth, and that is seen by multiple witnesses, both at uh, behind the book depository and at the scene of the tippet shooting, okay? So tippet pulls up, and he's in front of the alley, and out of the cop car comes Carrie Thornley, who looks just like Oswald. Uh, let me, I pulled a picture of him so you guys could see. Let me screen share this picture. So this is Carrie Thornley, okay? Os, obviously Oswald in the bottom right photo, but you can tell um, Carrie Thornley has the receding hairline. He's the same height, same weight. Like these guys, if you had the two of these guys in a crowd, you could easily mix them up. And even Garrison, uh, had photographs of these two guys that he would intermingle and then show witnesses and witnesses couldn't tell them apart. So uh, that's Kerry Thornley very much looks like Oswald. And he was definitely involved in setting up Oswald all over New Orleans uh, and other places. So, and uh, this is a picture right here of the tip at shooting. And you can see um, the alley between those two houses, right? So you have right where Tippett's car is, the alleyway where people are currently standing uh, that's where the other cop car was. And I'll show you, I have an aerial view. So uh, Tippett is on 10th and uh, this vehicle that contains Carrie Thornley pulls up uh, in the alley. And at exactly 1.05 PM, Carrie Thornley exits the vehicle and he starts to, he walks up to Tippett's car. And for a, a, a second or two, he talks to him through the little triangular, let me see if I have a picture here. Yeah, through this little triangular like window, right? Because the passenger window is closed. And so Carrie Thornley starts to talk to him through this little triangular window. Nobody knows what is said between them. But earlier that morning, um, J.D. Tippett had stopped into the Top 10 record store uh, to use the phone. Uh, so he is in Top 10 record store twice that day using the phone, right? So when he's there earlier that morning, probably about eight or nine o'clock, Carrie Thornley is in the store, okay? Uh, witnesses said that it was Oswald in the store, but Oswald is in Fort Worth at this point. He hasn't made it down to, the, to, to Dallas yet. So at this point, what I'm thinking is that Carrie Thornley is talking to him through the triangular window. He recognizes this guy from having been, if he didn't already know him outright, he recognized him from having been in the top 10 record store. The day before or two days before he's shot, he uh, also sees him at Dobbs Restaurant. Okay, so Dobbs Restaurant in Oak Cliff is right up the road from here. Uh, Tippett would go there for breakfast often. And uh, a waitress in there stated that she saw at the same time Tippett and who she called Oswald, but it was really Carrie Thornley. Uh, she sees them both not together uh, and they don't acknowledge each other, but they're both in the restaurant at the same time. So you got J.D. Tippett. If he didn't know Carrie Thornley, then he's seeing this guy for like the second or third time in the last couple of days. And this is a prearranged meeting spot. And we know it's a prearranged meeting spot because David Ferry is on scene, right? How else would David Ferry know to go here if it was just a chance encounter, right? So um, basically he starts, Tippett starts to get out of his car and he starts to walk around. And right as he gets to the front corner panel, right where the tire is like right here, uh, maybe even closer to the front of the car, Carrie Thornley shoots him three times in the chest uh, with a semi-automatic handgun. Uh, virtually at the same time, maybe a split second later, David Ferry, who was in the alley also, David Ferry walks down the alley and he delivers a fatal headshot to Tippett. So Tippett gets shot four times, three times in the chest and one time 
in the right temple. Honestly, when you look at the autopsy photo, it's virtually identical to where Kennedy was shot from the front, from the grassy knoll. So we know that there were two shooters there because of the uh, casings that were collected at the scene. So there's some, there's some weird obfuscation that's going on with the casings. Allegedly, officers on scene uh, who initially collected the casings initialed them, but then later those initials disappeared. Like you scratch them in, but then they disappeared. So there might be some uh, obfuscation with the shells that were collected. But in the shells that they present as evidence, uh, you can tell that this is from two different guns because you have in the upper right, you have a round imprint from a revolver. It's perfectly cylindrical, right? It's totally round. But when you look at all the others, they're round with a little notch. And that's indicative of a semi-automatic handgun and the way the semi-automatic works, right? So we know there were two shooters based on the, the, the imprints on the casings. So um, at this point in time, you've got the cop car in the alley. You've got Kerry Thornley in front of the vehicle, David Ferry, uh, he pulls out his round and he drops it. He's shooting from a revolver and revolvers don't eject the casings, but he intentionally pulls the casing out of the gun, leaves it at the scene and then puts another bullet back into the revolver, which is kind of odd, right? It's like, why would you do that? If you have a revolver, that's one of the benefits is that you don't lose your casings, you know? So um, at that point, Carrie Thornley takes off. Uh, David Ferry signals to Carrie Thornley to take off, and then Carrie Thornley heads out. Now, I have a statement from a guy named Frank Wright. And uh, Frank Wright didn't see the shooting, but he heard it and ran outside and saw everything that happened right after. <clears throat> so I'll read this to you. He said, I looked around to see what had happened. I knew there had been a shooting. I saw a man standing right in front of the car. He was looking toward the man on the ground. He stood there for a while and looked at the man. The man who was standing in front of him was about medium height. He had on a long coat. It ended just above his hands. I didn't see any gun. He ran around on the passenger side of the police car. He ran as fast as he could, and he got into his car. The car was a gray little old coupe. It was about a 1950, 51, maybe a Plymouth, okay? It was a gray car parked on the same side of the street as the police car, but beyond it from me. So it was parked on the same side of the street, but it was facing the opposite direction. <clears throat> it was heading away from me. He got in that car and he drove as quick as he could uh, down 10th Street and away from me. I don't know how far he drove after he got into the middle of the next block between Patton and Crawford. I didn't look at him anymore. Uh, so uh, Frank Wright is, is talking about, he sees two people and one of them flees in a little gray car. Uh, now, one of the, let me see if I can find it here. One of the best statements, another witness who we're going to talk about is Miss Akila Clemens. Now, this statement that you're going to see from her is the only statement she's ever made on the assassination. She was never interviewed by Warren Commissioner, anybody like that. I'm going to have to stop this and enable the sound real quick. Um, Matt, you look at uh, the involvement of everybody in here in the car compartmentalization and just the layers of spycraft. Do you think that something like this, uh, this is like a large scale assassination, could take place at all without you know the without being found out these days? I mean, we've got FBI agents these days arresting each other uh, for uh, investigations that they're going on. You got uh, you know all this confusion between ops these days. So I don't I don't see this even being capable of being pulled off. Yeah, I, I agree, and um, I think that to some degree, 
this was an exercise for them, right? This was like, uh, let's take what we've learned over the past. Because in 63, they had about 25 years of intelligence, starting with the, uh, you know, the OSS. And so they were, I think they were putting into practice techniques that they had been learning forever that maybe they didn't have a chance to, to utilize or things that they only did in other countries. Uh, I would really love for one of these ex-CIA guys to write a book on real life examples of them using the body doubles to pull off stuff like this because they don't admit it. The CIA never admits they use body doubles and stuff, but um, we know they do. So yeah, as far as like, could they pull this off today? Ooh, man, we got cell phone, we got cameras everywhere, right? So like, um, and everyone's got a a, a, a a digital ID, right? So they can pull your pick, you can pull your driver's license up in a computer, right? Like every state, all the licenses, you can pull up in a computer in about two minutes, right? So um, back then your driver license did not even have your picture on it. There was no databases of anything. Uh, police departments kept records on like cardstock, right? And like, if you wanted to look somebody up, they had to have some dispatcher go flip through a thousand cards looking for somebody's you know, information. So yeah, like, I could not imagine being a cop back then, but I can also say that you could get away with fucking anything back then because there wasn't what we have today, you know? So let me play this uh, video. Uh, this is Akila Clemens being interviewed by Mark Lane. Mrs. Clemens, where were you on November 22nd, 1963? I ran back down the street where he was lying, and I looked at him. Now, when you heard the shots, and you went out of the house, did you see a man with a gun? Yes, I did. What was he doing? Oh, he was reloading it. When I said he was reloading his gun. And how would you describe that man? Well, he's kind of chunky. He's kind of heavy. He wasn't a very big man. Was he tall or short? Yeah, he was kind of short guy. Short and heavy? Yes. And was there any other man there? Yes, there was one on the other side of the street. All I know, he told him to go. Mrs. Clemens, uh, the man who had the gun, uh, did he make any motion at all to the other man across the street? No more told him to go. Well, he waved his hand yes, and said, go on. And then what happened with the man with the gun? Uh, he unloaded and reloaded. And what did the other man do? Man kept going straight down the street. And then did they go in opposite directions? Yes, they were. They they weren't together. They went this way from each other. The one down the shooting went this way. The other one went straight down past street that way. What was the uh, the man who did not do the shooting, but the man who went in the other direction from the man with the gun? What was he wearing, if you remember? Well, I. First, I remember he looked like light khakis and a white shirt. And was he tall or short? He was tall. And was he heavy or thin? He was thin. But the one who did the, the one who had the gun seconds after Tippett was shot, he was short. Yes, he, was, he was short and kind of heavy. Now, did you testify before the Warren Commission about this? Case? I haven't said anything to anyone. Did anyone come to see you after the murder of Officer Tippett? Yes, he was a man came, I don't know what he was. He came to my house and talked to me. 
But I don't know what he looked like a policeman to me. He did. Did he have a gun? Yes, he wore a gun. Mrs. Clemens, how long after Tippett was shot did this man with a gun come to visit you? About two, about two days. It was about two days. Said that I might get hurt. Uh, someone might hurt me if I would talk. About what you saw? What I saw. He just told me to be the best if I didn't say anything because I might get hurt. Lately, we have been introducing you to all the amazing products Ascent Nutrition has to offer. This week, I'm very excited to tell you about their full-spectrum hemp oil. Ascent Nutrition's full-spectrum hemp oil utilizes superior plant genetics and an organic proprietary blend of natural ingredients. Their hemp oil contains not only an abundance of CBD, but 119 other phytocannabinoids found within the spectrum of the hemp plant. According to the National Center of Biotechnology Information, this strain is the gold standard in hemp genome sequencing. Ascent also uses a unique method that ensures infusion of significantly more phytocannabinoids and CBD than all other competitors they tested against including most of the leading CBD companies. I challenge everyone in the audience that uses CBD, as well as those of you who may have tried other CBD options and didn't get any results, to try Ascent Nutrition's full-spectrum hemp oil, which is guaranteed to be much stronger and contains more phytonutrients than any others on the market. Just click the link in the description or visit GoAscentNutrition.com and use coupon code FKN to get 10% off your entire purchase. So, yeah, that to me is the single best statement and from any witness in the entirety of the Kennedy assassination. Uh, it's obvious she's telling the truth. She's very relaxed and her demeanor's calm. Um, and she clearly indicates two people were involved in the shooting, and those two people just happened to match the description, David Ferry and Carrie Thornley. And then when you go back to the statements of Frank Wright uh, and how Frank Wright described him getting in the, in the Great Plymouth, uh, it becomes obvious that there is this long chain of events that begins on the grassy knoll with David Ferry, who fired the first shot at Kennedy, striking him in the throat. From there, he makes his way back into the uh, railroad area, and then he gets into the little Great Plymouth, and there he's seen by a woman named Velma. And then from there... Uh, she describes him with the heavy eyebrows. And from there, we have the description of Frank Wright uh, of the Plymouth, right? So it's, uh, yeah, it's to me, it's a, it's a, it's a singular chain of events. I have like a five, total of five or six witnesses whose statements I really had to heavily analyze uh, and combine in order to come to the realization that it was David Ferry. So after the shooting happens, David Ferry takes off in his great Plymouth. Um Unknown where he went. I have an idea, uh, but I'm not confident enough to really say. But he takes off. And then from there, Carrie Thornley runs from Patton to Jefferson. And then this picture here is of uh, a building. This is 413 Jefferson Street, East Jefferson. And basically, this, this is a, uh, on the bottom is a furniture store, right? And on the top is like a secondhand junk shop. And he 
runs to the secondhand junk shop, junk, junk shop, and he tries to get in. He can't get in. And this is all seen by a woman named Dorothea Dean. And she owned a little like convenient kind of store, whatever they had in 63, called Dean's Dairy Way. And so she, uh, her story gets completely squashed by the official story um, because uh, the official story is uh, Oswald shoots Shady Tippett at 116. And then he makes his way to the Texas theater where he enters 20 minutes later. The official story still can't account for 20 minutes of Oswald's time if he shot uh, Tippett at 116. So, but Terry Thornley, uh, runs to this secondhand junk shop. He can't get in. As he's going down the stairs, um, Mrs. Dean sees him pull off his jacket. But the official story says that the jacket, uh, and this is the jacket here, uh, that this jacket was located under a t- under a car in the parking lot of the Texaco by Captain Westbrook. And Captain Westbrook was the guy who drove Carrie Thornley to the tippet shooting and witnessed the whole thing, watched it as it went down. And we know the cops were there watching the tippet shooting happen because a witness named Doris Holen, who was directly across the street from the shooting on the second floor, she hears the gunshots. She gets out of bed and she runs uh, to the window and she looks out. Once again, she provides a perfect description of David Ferry with the black felt hat and the dark blue suit. Uh, And she says the other guy, she says, if it wasn't Oswald, it was his identical twin. Uh, says that he had a receding hairline, all the stuff, but I've already shown you. Carrie Thornley and Oswald, very similar to each other. And Carrie Thornley had been impersonating Oswald all over the place, okay? But Mrs. Dean, she says that she sees the man who she believes is Oswald uh, take off this jacket and throws it onto a tire rack, okay? Not under a car. Uh, Mrs. Dean also told, she told investigator Dale Myers, who is a complete failure as a researcher, um, she tells Dale Myers that it was actually her who went over to the Texaco, grabbed the jacket off of the tire rack, and she held onto it until much later, hours later, uh, when the police came to talk to her. Uh, so yeah, there must have been another jacket in play that was planted. Like this jacket was probably not the jacket that was actually being worn by the person who shot Tippett, Carrie Thornley, because the jacket he discarded was collected by Mrs. Dean and held onto. So plus it was found by Westbrook who drove Carrie Thornley there in the first place. You see like this is a big clusterfuck of uh, conspiracy going on here. And Westbrook is at like the tip of the spear. Compartmentalization and uh, man, it's. I wonder how the chain of command worked for some of this shit, man. There's so many people involved and so many people that can't know that other people are involved and don't know what the hell what the other people are doing. So, uh, man, this is crazy. It is crazy. And I think it really went down from like the top. It went from the top. It went from like the, the police chief, like Curry and like Decker. And then it went to their captains because there's like a bunch of captains involved. You have Westbrook and a couple other guys. And then it was guys who worked under them in their various squads who were doing different things. So uh, like Westbrook and his involvement with the, the tip of shooting and the jacket and all that stuff. Uh, I don't think like his little group knew about that, but like another police group under a different captain wouldn't know about it. Right. So yeah, the compartmentalization was definitely there. Plus I want to show this picture real quick. Um, this picture here is from the railroad yards and we can see here, this is William Seymour. Uh, and, and this is the person who I believe was actually in the book depository working there as Lee Harvey Oswald, okay? In the background, you have Detective Trantham, but you can tell it's not the same jacket, not because necessarily because of the color, but it looks like uh, William Seymour's jacket is smoother, like it's like leathery or something, right? And this one is made of like vinyl. 
So I don't think it's the same jacket. And plus I traced William Seymour to the other side of Oak Cliff. So it wasn't him. I eliminated him as being a suspect in the tippet shooting. So one piece of evidence that's really important is that Tippett's body arrived at the hospital where he was pronounced dead upon arrival at 1.15 p.m., which means that he was killed at 1.06, and within nine minutes, the ambulance showed up, loaded him into the back of the ambulance, drove him to the hospital where he's then pronounced dead. So it was, um, God, I forget the name of the, um, of the ambulance company. But the ambulance company that picked up the epileptic in Dealey Plaza two or three minutes before the assassination uh, was the same uh, ambulance company that picked up J.D. Tippett. But there's no records on them ever having been called. So this uh, this ambulance company, who obviously when you dig into it, there's connections to Jack Ruby and the mob. Uh, but uh, this, this ambulance company was like psychic and they just knew to show up in all these places at the right time. Uh, the first cop on scene was actually. Croy, who was with Westbrook, so he obviously was dropped off in the area somewhere, returns to the scene about 110, 111, and when he gets there at 110 or 111, he says that he is seeing um, Tippett's body loaded into the ambulance as he gets there. So that means that from the time J.D. Tippett was shot till the time he was put in the ambulance was about five minutes. Man, it makes uh, me wonder how cop- many like uh, businesses, even possible legit businesses, are also CIA fronts, you know, being used for clandestine ops and things. Oh, yeah, lots, um, because the, they need to generate money, right? Because this is all the, the money goes into black ops and it goes into things like you can't go to Congress and say, hey, we need 10 billion dollars to give to Al Qaeda. <laughs> right. You can't do that. Yeah. So that's where the drug track, the drug trafficking in and all that stuff and uh you know, all the heroin that was produced in Saigon, like that ended up getting funneled into like the Sandinistas and down in South America. I look and at things like like lamp it. stores or, you know, wholesale uh, toasters or something like that. I'm like, man, that's got to be some kind of fucking CIA front. Right, right, right. Exactly. Like you look at a store in like a fucking place where you're like, man, that's $10,000 a month rent for sure. Uh, and they have like, you know, sandals. Like, yeah. come on, nobody's buying that much shit to keep the store in business, right? So- that's another thing. Like, um, I think all the CIA used a lot of service shops, right? They would have like uh, TV repair and stuff like that, uh, because then they could work on electronics, covert electronics in the building, and they could have customers coming in. And it's just a good cover, right? So, but yeah, um, they definitely, I know for a fact, the mob had a whole bunch of like um, uh, funeral homes and places where they could dispose of bodies, right? That's like, that to me was, I, when I learned about that, I was just dying laughing. Because of course, they're going to have places to dispose oh, man, of that's bodies. That's the best. That's the easiest. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, <clears throat> so Tippett's body arrives at 115. He's pronounced dead. He was killed at 106. The official story says 116. So um, after Carrie Thornley leaves from the, he can't get into the junk shop. He runs to the Abundant Life Temple. Now he gets to the Abundant Life Temple and this Abundant Life Temple uh, was uh, incorporated by a guy named uh, Graham. And here's the weird thing about this. He was a, a temple is a Jewish temple, right? So it was incorporated as a Jewish temple, but initially it was incorporated as a, at a residence. And uh, there were two incorporators on it. Uh, the other guy, uh, his name was Davis. And this guy, Davis, his day job was working for Trailways Continental, right? The bus line. But also employed in Dallas by Trailways Continental was a guy named Kenneth Cody. And Kenneth Cody was the uncle 
of a Dallas cop named Joe Cody. Okay, now, first off, Kenneth Cody was confirmed living at 1026 North Beckley, the boarding house where Oswald allegedly lived. And um, Joe Cody on the day of the assassination uh, was not in Dallas. He actually flew a plane from Dallas to Shreveport where he got into like an accident on the ground in the airplane. Well, I determined that what was happening is that Joe Cody, David Ferry flew into Fort Worth two days before the assassination in his pri- in his little you know puddle jumper plane. And then on the day of the assassination, Joe Cody flew Ferry's plane back to Louisiana where he gets into the crash. Um, so yeah, when Kenneth Cody is asked, uh, when Joe Cody is asked, where was he on the day of the assassination? He literally provided like a four page report to the Dallas police on why he wasn't in Dallas. Okay, totally unnecessary. When you go above and beyond explaining your shit when you don't have to, you're guilty. So, yeah. Um, but the connection to the Abundant Life Temple is through his um, uncle, Kenneth Cody, who worked for the same company as a guy who was an incorporator of the Abundant Life Temple, which had no known congregate congregators, right? Nobody ever went to this goddamn church. So um, they the cops end up swarming this place. Uh, they searched the basement. Uh, but as they're getting there, Kerry Thornley, he, I think he's detained. There's some, the, the Dallas radio log transcripts are kind of, they're definitely censored and edited, uh, but there's some obfuscation. I can't really tell if they had stopped the person here at the Abundant Life Temple or at the library because they did detain somebody at the library also. But uh, in my opinion, I think they get here and Kerry Thornley is, is here at the Abundant Life Temple. They detain him for a moment and they cut him loose at about 1.35. So um, at a, after 135, Kerry Thornley leaves from the Abundant Life Temple and he walks down Jefferson towards the Texas theater. And this is a modern picture, but one of these stores here uh, used to be Hardy's shoe store. Okay. So um, it's at 135, 136 that Kerry Thornley is seen here at the um at, at the shoe store, he ducks in like cops are going. There's official story says cops are driving by, and this guy ducks in with his back to them, so like he can't be seen. And when the cops pass, he walks out of the store. Now we'll get back to the store here momentarily because that whole incident was another setup staged incident. But Oswald uh, was already in the theater, so this is I'm going to play a clip from Butch Burroughs. Uh, Butch Burroughs was the manager of the concession stand and the assistant manager of the theater. And the statements that he gave to police and the FBI that day, he completely changed when he was approached by independent researchers later because he, you know, he, he, he knew what the deal was. He couldn't be telling these people that there were two Oswalds in the theater, which there were, and we'll get to. But this is what he says about Oswald. And then notice the time frame. Uh, we were playing two movies called uh, War as Hell with Audie Murphy and battle with Van Heflin and uh, we started the movie at one o'clock and I was counting candy behind the candy case and he also slipped in around between one and one seven. So Bush Burroughs and this is not in the official story but you'll find this in his uh in his interviews with people like James Douglas and Jim Mars later on, but Oswald bought a ticket. They say he slipped in. He didn't. Oswald bought a ticket 
from the counter. He, the movie had started at one. He got there just after the movie had started. He buys a ticket. Butch Burroughs collects his ticket from him. That's how he knows that he was there between one o'clock and one o seven. So J.D. Tippett is shot at 106, about four or five blocks away. There's zero possibility that it could have been Oswald because Oswald has an alibi from, from Butch Burroughs here. So basically what Oswald does, this is fascinating stuff. Um, Oswald enters the theater. And there's only about 22 people in the theater. It's a 900-seat theater. So what he does is he walks in and he sits in front of a guy named uh, James Davis. And it's only an 18 year old kid. And so he sits directly in front of him, but then after a couple seconds, he gets up and then he sits directly next to him, right? So you have a 900 seat theater with 22 people in it. And this stranger is just sitting directly next to him. And, he, and he's like, what the hell is going on here? Other people in the theater, they see Oswald. He gets up two or three times. He eventually sits down next to a pregnant woman, okay? Um, at this point, uh, it's probably close to 115 at this point. He and the pregnant lady talk, and both of them walk back to the lobby. The pregnant woman disappears, um, and Oswald goes to the candy case where Butch Burroughs sells Oswald popcorn at 1.15 p.m., okay? So the time when allegedly Tippett is shot, Oswald's eating popcorn in a movie theater, Right. Oswald will sit in this movie theater for the next 30 to 40 minutes, eating popcorn, watching a movie. Does that sound like the behavior of somebody who just murdered the president and a, and a Dallas cop minutes before? Absolutely not. Uh, Oswald doesn't have a clue. He was probably in a cab catching a ride to the Texas theater at the time that the president was shot. And unless he found out about the president being shot in the cab, he might not even know that the president is dead yet at this point. So um, here is a picture of like where Oswald was pulled from. He's pointing out the seat that Oswald was sitting in. Let me see if I have more pictures of the theater. Yeah, so this is a picture of the theater. It's a huge theater with a balcony, 900 seats, and Oswald's just sitting directly next to people, right? So yeah, Oswald's a patsy. He didn't know a damn thing. He's in there eating popcorn the whole time. Um, so let's go back to a guy named Johnny Brewer. Okay, Johnny Brewer is the guy who was <clears throat> working inside Hardy's shoe store. Um, I did at one point read that he had deposited a big check um, like a week before the assassination, but I can't find that again. So I don't, I don't, I don't mention it in my book and I don't put too much credence into it, even though I did read it somewhere. So allegedly as Oswald dips into the, it was actually Carrie Thornley dips into the shoe store, Johnny Brewer, um, happens to notice that he's ducking in at a time as cops are flying by. Now I worked in retail for years and, uh, if I'm in a shoe store, like in the middle of a strip like that, it's probably pretty dead most of the day. Uh, when a customer comes in, the first thing that's going to come to my mind is, oh, I'm going to sell this guy a pair of shoes. Not, oh my God, he must be running from the cops, right? Because a cop drove by outside. Like it was just too convenient. Uh, they hadn't announced the identity of Tippett on the radio. They just knew a cop was shot in the area. So the idea that that Brewer would be able to put two and two together on the fact that this person was fleeing from anything is to me just ridiculous on its face. Uh, but the, the, the important thing here is that there are two other people working inside or there are two other people present inside of the shoe store at the time. And I'll come back to them. So 136, um, this person uh, who he identifies as Oswald 
comes into the shoe store. He then dips out and he follows him out of the store. And the theater is only a couple doors down. He says that he sees the person walk into the, the right side door of the theater without buying a ticket. Okay. This is where um, I just finished this chapter uh, for the book. And I, it took me about a week longer than expected because I ended up having to do a ton of research on this little particular in, this little incident involving Johnny Brewer and the woman who was selling tickets at the box office, a woman named Julia Postal. So Julia Postal is completely clueless, right? She's just sitting there listening to the radio, not paying attention to anything. She doesn't see anyone slip in. Her statements later say that she says she saw somebody slip in, but she didn't. Uh, because Johnny Brewer's statement uh, to the Dallas police, FBI, Warren Commission, everybody, he said that she was totally clueless and he was the only person who saw it happen, which I think is kind of strange, right? So he sees the guy walk into the theater. He doesn't know if he bought a ticket two hours ago or what, but he he assumes the guy just walked in without buying a ticket. He talks to Julia Postal. Uh, at this point, Johnny Brewer goes inside the theater and he and Butch Burroughs, instead of walking in the theater to see if they can see the guy, Instead, what they do is they check all the exits in the building and make sure that they're secure, which I'm sorry, that makes no sense to me either. If I'm looking for somebody, I'm going to be out there looking for them, not checking exits to make sure they can't escape. It makes no sense at all. So um, eventually the cops are called by Julia Postal. However, I cannot locate the first officer on scene. And this is crucial because this is all happening at 1.36, right? We put the, the timing of the appearance at the shoe store at exactly 1.36 p.m. At 1.40 p.m., it is called out over the radio by officers on scene that they are at the Texas theater and that someone had gone in without buying a ticket and they think it might be our suspect in the tippet shooting. That's only four minutes later, Okay. Uh, Julia Postal didn't make her phone call till at least 1.40. So the cop's response to the Texas theater and the phone call that she allegedly made to call them to get them out there have nothing to do with each other. The cops were on scene within four minutes of Carrie Thornley entering the theater. Okay, this is what really drove me nuts. I spent probably an entire day rereading and rereading these statements just to try to figure out what actually happened. And I cannot figure out who the first cops on scene were. The people who were identified as the first cops on scene, um, basically in their statements, they say that they heard uh, the dispatch over the radio that something was going on at the Texas theater, but that's not possible because they're there within four minutes, probably around or immediately after the time that Julia Postal made the phone call to the cops, also, when you read the statements of Julia Postal and of Johnny Brewer, Johnny Brewer basically tells everybody that it was his idea to call the police, his idea to search the theater. He did everything, right? But when you read Julia Postal's statements, she says that it was her idea to call the cops. It was her idea to have Johnny Brewer search the place. And so this is kind of like, whose idea was it to go do all this stuff? And I'm going to say it was probably neither of them, right? This whole thing is a staged incident. Johnny Brewer is definitely in on this. And I'll tell you why. Working inside the shoe store at the time that Johnny Brewer and all this stuff went down was a guy named Tommy Rowe, R-O-W-E. Tommy Rowe was such a close and personal friend of Jack Ruby that when Jack Ruby went to jail on the 24th, Johnny Brewer took over his apartment and maintained his lease until it was up. Okay, that's how close that Johnny Brewer, I mean, sorry, that Tommy Rowe and Jack Ruby were. Okay, so when you dig into the book, when you dig into everything in, in Kennedy that's associated with Oswald in Dallas, 
you'll find every person he talked to, every place he allegedly lived, er, had direct connections to Jack Ruby. Both boarding houses directly connected to Jack Ruby and um, the shoe store incident directly connected to Jack Ruby through Tommy Rowe. So um, Tommy Rowe never is questioned by anybody. He doesn't appear in the official story. He doesn't appear anywhere, right? Nobody ever hears about this guy until an article is published in the 1970s where his family came forward and actually talked to reporters about the situation. And according to his family, it was not Brewer who went into the uh, Texas theater. It was Tommy Rowe who went in and pointed Oswald out to the police. So that's another thing. So allegedly Thornley goes in the shoe store seen by Johnny Brewer. Um, but then when Johnny Brewer searches the theater, he can't find him anywhere. Like he's gone in the balcony twice. He goes down to the lower level. He looks, walks up and down the aisles. He does not see the person he saw in his store. Once the police show up, the police talk to Johnny Brewer out back in the alley. And as soon as they come in from the alley, they walk on stage. And then Brewer is immediately able to pick out Oswald sitting in the back. But Oswald hasn't moved in 30 minutes, right? So there's some really is the whole setup of Oswald around the Texas theater involving Johnny Brewer is completely fishy, right? Uh, doesn't make any sense. And but it makes perfect sense if you realize that Tommy Rowe is in on the setup and that he's coaching Brewer on what to say and do. Then that the whole story makes perfect sense. Um, so here we can tell. Here we go. All units stand by unless you have emergency emergency traffic, and that's at 1:40 p.m. Okay. And then uh, Officer 35, who I can't figure out who 35 is, um, the person who says is 35 is allegedly the first person on scene. But in his statements, I forget his name offhand. I have it in my notes here somewhere. In his statements, he says that he heard it over the radio, so he went out there. But that's just not possible based on the timeline. Um, that all happened within four minutes. Uh, and there's 35 out at the Texas Theater on West Jefferson. And then uh, he's being asked, what do you got at the Texas Theater? Right. So the response to the Texas theater had nothing to do with Julia Postal calling the cops. It's a cover story. That's all it is. Um, they knew to be there at a certain time and everything Carrie Thornley did involved with the shooting, going to the Abundant Life Temple, all that stuff was on a very tight schedule. Um, and then when you look through the radio logs, uh, a couple of interesting things. Uh, here we go at 140. It's called out. Shells uh, at the scene indicate the suspect is armed with an automatic 38 rather than a pistol. That is fact. It was an automatic 38. It was called out over the radio. But then uh, I have a feeling the gun that David Ferrer used when he shot Tippett with the revolver, I have a feeling he had to have left from the scene and gone and met up with one of the cops involved in the arrest of Oswald to give them that revolver because Oswald did not own a revolver. When you look into the story of Oswald ordering the rifle and ordering the revolver, they're, they completely fall apart. Uh, the rifle was ordered with a fake money order. The fake money order, you know, it's fake because it was supposed to have been printed on cardstock, but it was printed on paper because the ink bled through to the backside. So that was totally fake. Oswald didn't order a rifle with a fake money order. Um, and then when you get into the revolver, there's even less evidence. Allegedly, he sent $10 and a coupon uh, to order a pistol uh, from this company uh, that was $29.95. But uh, and we have allegedly the order forms and all this stuff. But when he gets the pistol, it's actually a more expensive Smith & Wesson that costs $39.99. And there's 
no explanation as to why they sent him a different pistol than the one that was ordered, right? <laughs> None of it makes any sense. And then the person who picked up the pistol from the uh, post office uh, signed the receipt Paxton, okay? The only time the name appears in the entire assassination, the name Paxton is what is signed for picking up the revolver that's linked to Oswald. Uh, it's complete fabrication. It was very sloppy work. I mean, it was great for 1963, but, um, you know, and... Uh, uh, in this day and age, uh, uh, couldn't be done. So here we go uh, at 1.45. So Oswald has been in the theater for 30 minutes. He got there between one o'clock and 1.07. And here now we have information. The suspect just went in Texas theater on West Jefferson and he's hiding in the balcony. This is super important because Carrie Thornley was the second person to enter into the theater. And Carrie Thornley did so at 1.36. He did not buy a ticket. And that is what triggered the series of events involving Johnny Brewer and uh, Tommy Rowe and Julia Postal and Butch Burroughs, right? So Oswald goes there. He buys a ticket from Julia Postal. She doesn't mention this because, honestly, she doesn't remember. Um, when you work in retail, you don't really remember um, the people who come and buy stuff from you, right? I could sell somebody, I worked at Camelot Music for years. I could sell somebody a couple CDs. Uh, if I saw them the next day, I wouldn't recognize them. You know what I mean? So you, you, that's kind of information that you just kind of absorb and then you, you disregard because it's not important. So there was no problems anywhere at the theater. She doesn't know anything is wrong until uh, Johnny Brewer comes up to her and says, hey, do you see that guy? And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? And so, but then in her statements later on, they're all different. Their statements say, oh yeah, I saw the guy and I told Johnny to go in there and get him. So it's complete bullshit. This is what the Texas theater looked like um, almost immediately afterwards. <clears throat> so one story I need to tell, which is really important, is uh, from Butch Burroughs and a guy named Bernard Hare. So <clears throat> after Oswald is arrested and taken out the front of the building, Butch Burroughs sees a second person as who looked like Oswald being arrested and taken out the back of the building. Okay. So Butch Burroughs who witnessed Oswald's arrest startled me in his interview by saying he saw a second arrest occur in the Texas theater. Only three or four minutes later, he said the Dallas police then arrested an Oswald lookalike. Burroughs said the second man looked almost like Oswald, like he was his brother or something. I questioned the comparison by asking, could you see the second man as well as you could see Oswald? He said, yes, I could see both of them. They looked alike within a space of three or four minutes, saw the second Oswald placed under arrest and handcuffed, but taken out the back of the theater. OK, so now we have corroboration of this statement from a guy named Bernard Hare, who earned uh, who owned uh, Bernie's Hobby House, which was like a little, you know, a hobby shop. It was two or three doors down. So Bernard Hare, he sees the commotion out front. He goes out front to see what's going on, but such a crowd is, is amassed out there that he can't see anything. So he goes back into his hobby shop. He goes out the back door. And when he goes out the back door, he sees this other person who he believed for 25 years was Oswald, right? So Bernard Hare sees what he thinks is Oswald taken out the back of the building and put into a Dallas cop car and they drive him away. It wasn't until he was interviewed by the Dallas Morning News literally 25 years later that they informed him that Oswald was arrested out the front of the building, not the back. And he goes, damn, this whole time I thought it was Oswald. He's like, if that wasn't Oswald, I don't know who it was. So here we have two witnesses clearly with independently corroborating statements that two people were arrested in the, in the, in the Texas theater and that they both look like Oswald, right? Oftentimes you need corroboration. Well, you always need corroboration, but when it comes to statements, 
you could have independently corroborating statements. And even though that's all you have, that is as solid evidence as it gets, even though there's no physical evidence. Like the statement that was made by Akila Clemens about he waved his hand and just told him to go. That exact sentiment was told to uh, investigators by Doris Holland, who saw the same thing happen from across the street. And Doris Holland, her name didn't come up in the assassination investigation until like the 1990s, right? Like 30 years later. So yes, and she saw the exact same thing. Those are two completely independent statements by people who didn't know each other, hadn't heard each other's statements, and they provide the same information. As a former cop, I'm telling you that that is absolutely slam dunk evidence uh, and corroborating statements are better than any physical evidence you'll find most of the time. So yeah, so there were definitely two Oswalds in the theater. Oswald was there at 107, um, watching the movie, meeting with a pregnant woman, contact, and Kerry Thornley, who actually did the shooting of J.D. Tippett, he gets in there and he's there um, in the balcony. So he goes and he hides in the balcony and we have corroboration from L.D. Stringfellow, who was a, a detective with the Dallas Police Department. And in this report that he submitted, he says, on November 22nd, 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested in the balcony of the Texas Theater, 231 West Jefferson Boulevard, and was charged with the murder of the president. So yeah, we have a police report that says a guy was pulled out of the balcony of the theater, right? Each of these little tiny puzzle pieces all fit. They're all corroborating. And to me, what happened makes perfect sense. Uh, and yeah, and this, and here's another thing. Um, so earlier in the day, witnesses say that a green pickup truck, and I have a picture of it, uh, this green pickup truck here was broken down in front of the grassy knoll and allegedly... I think it was Gene Hill who saw a man get out of the car who was wearing like a black sock hat. And he goes to the back of the truck and she says that he pulled out what she believed to be a rifle case, like one of those canvas rifle cases that's wide on one end and narrow on the other, uh, and then walk up to Grassy Knoll. And that's about 11 o'clock in the morning. Okay. So this is the truck here that was being driven by Jack Ruby that morning. When the cops get there, H.H. H. Stringer, who uh, caught a ride to Oak Cliff with Captain Westbrook after the Tippett shooting. So Tippett gets shot. Westbrook drives back to Dealey Plaza. It's only uh, about a mile and a half away. And then he picks up a couple guys and drives back into Oak Cliff. H.H. Stringer was one of them. H.H. Stringer gets to the Texas theater and he arrives in the back alley. And when he arrives in the back alley, he sees a pickup truck running. Okay. Doesn't provide a color. But I'm telling you that this pickup truck that was running in the back alley of the Texas theater is this one here. It was the green pickup truck that was also broken down in front of the grassy knoll. Um, you have a witness inside of the theater whose name was George Applin. And um, George Applin, basically, he tried to say this at the Warren Commission, but he got cut off. They basically shut him down as he started to talk about this. Uh, this is a statement he gives to the Dallas Morning News later. The Dallas Morning News is kind of funny because they had guys who were involved in the assassination, guys like uh, Tony Zappi. Uh, but then years later, they did some really good work on investigating the assassination. Just goes to show the compartmentalization within organizations. So in 79, uh, Jack, uh, George Applin tells this story. He says, at the time, the Warren Commission had me down there at the post office in Dallas to get my statement. I was afraid to give it. I gave everything up to the point of what I gave police in town. I'm a pretty nervous guy anyway, because I'll tell you what, after I saw the magazine where all those people said they were connected with some of this had come up dead, it made me kind of keep a low profile. Jack Ruby was sitting down just watching them and Oswald pulled the gun and snapped it at McDonald's head. I don't believe that. I believe the gun was planted on Oswald and probably pulled by McDonald. 
But uh, he says that in the darn thing wouldn't fire. That's when I tapped him on the shoulder. I said he'd better move because there was guns waving around. He just turned around and looked at me and then uh, turned around and started watching them. And that was in Crossfire by Jim Mars. So basically, George Applin identifies Jack Ruby as having been a guy who was inside the Texas theater watching the events as they unfolded. He didn't know it was Jack Ruby until later when he sees Jack Ruby on television and he shoots Oswald. And at that moment, he was like, he couldn't believe it. He just couldn't believe that the guy he saw in the theater watching Oswald get arrested was the same guy who shot Oswald. So, yeah. And then the statements by Stringer that he was uh, in the back searching a truck, that a pickup truck that was running. This, to me, this is a complete corroboration. It completely fits. Um, and when you realize that there were two Jack Rubies running around, Jack and his brother, Samuel Ruby, who was at this point at 145, um, he was at Parkland Hospital. Okay. So, yeah, um, that's basically what happened with the tippet shooting. It was a completely staged event, and it was meant to get the cops riled up to want to go catch the guy who did it, right? Because they didn't really, get, they, they all hated Kennedy. Kennedy was considered a communist back then. Um, you know, like, and people believe that. We, we call Joe Biden a communist, and like, we see what he's doing with, with all this bullshit today. Dude, Joe Biden then, tried to shake hands with nobody the other day. Did you see that? That was, that was great. He's like, oh, oh, and then he tried to do the the, the shift to the point. He went, oh, and he pointed <laughs> to the chair. I was like, you're a fucking idiot. I didn't realize, but that guy, Joe Biden, has had multiple aneurysms. Like, uh, he should be dead. Like, I think he is. He's, he's that's where they put the robot corpse. brain in there. Right. Yeah. They got the. But yeah. So the, the tippet shooting was a staged event, uh, and it had to happen in order to get the cops riled up. But also, I believe there's an occult aspect to it, and I believe that they had to have three killings, uh, Oswald and J.D. Tippett and Kennedy, because that goes back to the three pillars. And it's some old, old shit Freemasons are into, and it goes really back to Canaan and all that stuff, right? But all the ancient yeah. religion shit always has to rear its ugly fucking head in this stuff. It's that Babylonian death cult. They always got to uh, throw their shit in there, their ritualistic shit. Man, this You is could incredible. not sum it up better. Babylonian death cult is the really, like, nails it. Yeah. Because that's exactly what it is. Because these fucking people who are into this occult shit... It's, it's pre-Abrahamic. I mean, they're going back to like the days of Canaan with fucking and Egypt and like the sacrifices and like the Egyptian lore and like all the all the pre-Judaism stuff. It's, it's, these fucking people are lunatics. Absolute yeah, fucking blood drinking lunatics. Absolutely. It's the same shit, just thinly veiled in a technocracy these days. So, uh, But it's incredible research, man. When, uh, when do you have an update on when you possibly think this may be coming out? Yeah, I'm still shooting for September. Um, the, the thing that I, so when I'm writing everything in, uh, in, uh, pages, which is like word for Mac. Right. So, but I didn't realize that when you write in a standard word processor, when you format it for the book, it more than doubles the length of what you have. Like my JD Tippett chapter is 29 and a half pages long. Okay. And I thought it was a, a fairly standard length for a chapter, about 30 pages. When I put it into my book formatter, it was 70 pages long. So I couldn't fucking believe it. So my book will probably end up being, I've probably got about, by right now, I probably have well over a hundred pages typed in like word format, which will end up as it currently stands is probably well over 200 pages, probably 220, 230 pages as it stands. Um, and so I've been trying to knock out the hardest stuff first, 
Um, but I have a, I, I'm, there's, there's a couple of chapters I'm putting off that I'm dreading because I'm going to have to spend a couple of days of re-upping my old research to be able to understand it well enough to be able to let it flow. Like the tip of shooting and, and writing it up, it flowed very easily because I understand it very well. But when I start to get into like the background of people like Danny Green and Dave Yaris and some of these lower mob guys who are involved in the assassination and connecting them to people like Jack Ruby, I'm going to have to go back and spend a couple of days like just reading to refresh my knowledge so it'll make more sense so I can write it out. That's the hardest thing. Like I thought that I'd be able to just sit down and just type and everything would come out. Uh, but no, I'm like, hey, if I, I say something, then I'm like, holy shit, I have to justify that I just said that, right? So then I have to go and pull the references and all that stuff. So the technical part of the writing is the hardest part, not the actual writing of the words. But as it stands right now in book format, I've got probably well over 200 pages and it's probably going to end up being a 400 page book. And um, so what I have done, I've got like, um, what I have left to do is write out the actual, the day of the assassination, what happened, like leading up to, I have to write out the assassination in the series of events with all the supporting data. And then the chaos that went on in Dealey Plaza. Um, and then once those are done, that'll be probably two chapters, probably another hundred pages. Once that's done, the entire second half of the book will be complete. And then out of the first half of the book, I'll probably still have two or three chapters to go because I've already got chapters finished on uh, William Seymour, on J.D. Tippett, on the Winterland, on, um, yeah, I've got about eight or nine chapters like done already, like finished. Um, so yeah, when it's, I'm, I'm shooting for September. The thing I'm leaving myself a, a buffer for is the editing and formatting process. Um, that I think I'm leaving, I, I originally scheduled myself for a month just to do the editing and the formatting, but I think I can knock that down. I think I can edit and format each chapter in a day. So I can probably cut that down to two weeks. Um, but yeah, I'm still shooting for mid-September and I'm hoping to have all the writing. Oh yeah, if I can have all the writing finished by the end of August, which is like, what, uh, five weeks from now, which I think is reasonable. And then two weeks to get it formatted and done. Yeah, um, you know, if you wanted to say worst case scenario, I'd say October 1st, and that'll leave us like three months of selling it before the end of the year, which I think is killer. But to tell me what I'm going to do, um, we're going to sell a thousand pre-release copies with all my notes and with access to my private chat and whatever other goodies I can think to throw in there. And then once we actually raise a decent amount of money, I will have the cash to pay for like the hardcover editions. You know, I'm going to do a limited edition of like a hundred hardcover copies um, there's a lot of ways that we can package this, but yeah, um, we're going to have immediately out and in late in mid to late September is going to be the book and all my stuff that you can download with it. It'll be 20 bucks. Um, and you'll get access to a whole bunch of stuff, but I'm only doing a thousand. We're only doing a limited edition of a thousand. And then all of the other copies are going to have to be Amazon friendly, you know? Right. So I'll have to like edit it down and put out a copy that can be sold to the general public. Awesome, so yeah, it's going to be good can't wait that's a it's a lot of work it's making me tired just thinking about all that but uh oh so so i finished my tippet chapter yesterday or the day before and i had spent that day i was like i gotta get this done uh, i ended up doing about 4500 words in a single day is the biggest day i had yet i worked on it for like 10 hours straight and literally when i got done i felt like i ran a marathon <laughs> like i could not fucking 
I couldn't do anything. I just laid there. I was like, oh my God, like I was exhausted. Like I ran a marathon. Um, the, the mental energy that I'm putting into this has been like uh, fucking unreal, really. It's, it's, this is going to be my quintessential work that hopefully, um, you know, will carry me for the rest of my life. And I've, it's, I think it's something that we'll be able to, 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 to promote and sell for a very long time, for years to come. That's great, man. We're looking forward to it. Uh, we've got supportfkn.com if anyone wants to help with this. You also get access to uh, tons of the information that we were just talking about, previous information. I highly recommend everyone go and check out the previous broadcasts we've done about let me, this. Let me touch on that for a second. Uh, so yeah. I have a private JFK chat that's only for supporters. You can get into that chat for even just a $5 donation. You get the link. Um, there's only about 10 of us in there. And there's only about three or four of us who are actively posting stuff daily. But man, we have a great time. And the guys who are actively posting stuff are posting like everything, not just Kennedy, but like you name it. It's become an incredible repository of links and good information. Um, so yeah, um, and you can do that today. You can get into the, to the chat today, donate five bucks and uh, you can ask me as many questions as you want. We'll have conversations, post links, have a good time. And I highly recommend everybody head over to buymeacoffee.com slash forbidden or supportfkn.com and make a donation because we're dirt ass poor. <laughs> so. Yeah, man, we get by, we pay our bills and that's eat and eat and that's it. But uh, yeah, yeah, I live man. on, I, I got, I got a proof for a credit card and I live on that credit card. That's basically <laughs> how life has been working. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, it is what it is. I'm grateful for for even having that. Well, thanks again, man. This was awesome. I look forward to the book and we'll do it again soon. Uh, you can also check out the rest of Corey's work at CoreyHughes.org, right? Yep. CoreyHughes.org. Perfect. All right. Until next time, everyone, have an excellent evening. We'll talk again tomorrow. See y'all out there. You're now listening to Ride to War by Draugablu.